This is Theology Refresh with Desiring God for pastors and other leaders. David Mathis here with John Piper. Our topic is the God-centeredness of God. John, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you. It's great to be with you. I'm so excited to talk about this topic. Uh, if not the most, without a doubt, one of the most life-changing doctrines for me personally. So thank you for your willingness to talk about it. When we talk about the God-centeredness of God, and, and you've gone across the country for decades talking about the God-centeredness of God. What do we mean? What do you mean? Uh, one way to say it is that I believe God is righteous. That is, God always does what's right. And to do what's right when you're God and there's no book above you to conform your will to, you conform your will to what is true and what is absolute in value. And God is absolute. God is supremely valuable. The central reality in the universe is God. Once there was only God, and there was nothing but God, and then God created a universe, and then there was God plus the universe, and he clearly then is supreme above the universe as the creator and is the central meaning of the universe. All things are from him, through him, and to him. So then you have to step back and say, all right, when there was only God, and when there was a universe that was all about God, how should God think about that? How should God think about what is true, what is valuable, what is beautiful? And his answer would have to be, I am true, I am valuable, I am beautiful. I am the most beautiful thing that is, I am the most true thing that is, I am the most valuable thing that is, and therefore God esteems what is most valuable most highly. If he esteemed what is most valuable least highly, he would be unrighteous. He would be false to the truth, false to himself. So God, by his very nature, values God, loves God, delights in his own character above all things because he is supremely valuable. We're never in a position like that as creatures. We're never to imitate him in this regard. And that's why it always sounds a little strange because our values have to be different than that because we're a creature and he's, he's not. So the God-centeredness of God means that God uh, admires God above all things. He treasures God above all things. He values God above all things and therefore he acts in a way that reflects that supreme value, which means that God always does everything he does for the sake of his own glory. That is to display or communicate or uphold his glory. He never increases his glory because he is infinitely glorious and can't be increased in any, any way. So God is God-centered in that God values himself above all things and acts in accord with that valuing. And not only is this reasonable and the extension of good reason, but it's backed by biblical revelation. Uh, you've, over the years, you've given dozens of texts. Would you give one or two that you love to go to? Well, the, the most God-centered text in all the Bible, I think, in terms of just its thudding, repetitive communication of God's commitment to God would be Isaiah 48, uh, 9, that goes like this, for my namesake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. 
I have refined you, but not like silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake, I do it. How should my name be profaned? My glory, I will not give to another. Now, we could go all over the book of Isaiah and find another dozen texts more or less like that. That's the most condensed, uh, distilled statement that I know of, of God's God's centeredness and his commitment to his own glory. So that in everything he does, in this case, he's deferring his anger against Israel. Why is he deferring his anger? For my name's sake, I'm deferring my anger. These are my people. They go by my name. In this case, I judge it as supremely helpful for my name to be honored by deferring my anger. And so they at that moment should have felt wonderfully glad that God is God-centered. Mm -hmm. It was their life. That's right. And God is one, and God is three. God's also Trinity. And you and I were talking a few minutes ago about a, a text where Christ is very Christ-centered. Would you want to draw the Trinitarian extensions and, and bring Christ into this? Yeah, before we go to that text, I think it's fair to say that when we read general statements like Isaiah 48 of God doing things for his own glory, that's God as a totality. He's not making distinctions in the persons of the Trinity there. But as the Bible unfolds the picture and the reality and the detail of the Trinitarian existence, then you start to see roles of each person in the Trinity. And what you find is that those roles are mutually glorifying. Mm. In other words, within the Trinity, this commitment to God's supremacy and God's supreme value uh, are, are manifest. So Jesus, when he comes into the world and approaches the cross, he bows down and says, shall I escape this hour? No, for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. So Jesus saw his function in the cross as upholding the righteousness and the glory of God, Romans 3.25. The Holy Spirit, uh, John 16, 14, is it? Mm -hmm. yes. Where the Holy Spirit, he says, I will send you a, uh, another comforter and he will glorify me. So the Holy Spirit is devoted to glorifying the Son. The Son is devoted to glorifying the Father. And the Father has arranged all things so that uh, every knee will bow and say that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I think even the Holy Spirit, though he's sort of the self-effacing, as it were, humble, <laughs> meaning more retiring, he's, he's always putting forward the Son. Nevertheless, um, when in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about the manifestations of the Spirit, I can't help but think that there's the sense there that when a person does a spiritual gift, like when they teach with an anointing from the Holy Spirit, those who have a discerning heart should say, the Spirit is awesome. The Holy Spirit is wonderful. He should be praised in that sense. That's good. And uh, so, so the Son glorifies the Father. The Father glorifies the Father. The Father yes. glorifies the Son. The Spirit glorifies the Father and Son and the Spirit in, in regards to that text. And in particular, Jesus glorifies Jesus even. Yeah, I, the reason this seems relevant to draw out is to help people make the turn in this conversation 
from this sounding like God is an egomaniac or a megalomaniac, which is what he's been accused of by quite a few people who, who see this in the Bible, including C.S. Lewis, Oprah Winfrey, Brad Pitt, uh, a writer for the London Times. I mean, I collect all these things when I see them who say, I'm rejecting God because I don't like his jealousy for his name. I don't like his self-exaltation. I don't like the way Jesus was an egomaniac. And, and to clarify, Lewis before his conversion. Yeah, right. C.S. Lewis, before he was converted, said that the Psalms to him sounded like an old woman needing compliments. Praise me, praise me, praise me, praise me, praise me. And, and we all empathize with that until we realize that God's God-centeredness is God's upholding the very thing that satisfies the human soul. Yes. So, he, he, But the place this might seem most striking is to go to 2 Corinthians, um, where is it, chapter 5, where Jesus says, or Paul says about Jesus, he died for all. This is 2 Corinthians 5.15. <clears throat> Excuse me. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sakes died and was raised. Now that's Jesus. So he's saying, Jesus dies for you so that you will live for him. Now, living for him doesn't mean, oh, finally he's got somebody to help him, like a, a servant in the household because he needs help and can't get his work done. He means living for his glory, living in such a way as to make Jesus look great. That's what Paul said his whole life was devoted to. My life is to magnify Christ, whether by life or by death. So Christ died so that Paul can make much of Christ. Well, now, how, how self-exalting could that be? Christ dying for the glory of Christ. That's what it boils down to. Now, the reason that is not bad news, the reason Christ is not an egomaniac in that is that, number one, he is the most glorious person in the universe. And he would be dishonest and unrighteous if he wanted me to live for something else. And number two, my living for him, my glorifying him is my joy. So the way we at, here at Desiring God solve this problem is, is with our key statement. God, or we could say Christ, is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So the reason the God-centeredness of God or the, God, the Christ-centeredness of Christ is not bad news is that the way he has designed for us to magnify him is by being satisfied in him. So if you, if you come to a person and say, the greatest reality in the universe is after you to give you the maximum satisfaction that your soul was designed for in that reality, would you consider that bad news? Mm -hmm. Well, nobody with reason would. No, that's the best news in the world. My maximum satisfaction in the universe's maximum beauty, that's perfect. And if you just stop and ponder, well, goodness gracious, if I found maximum satisfaction in the greatest reality, I would be making much of that. We all know that's true. When people are delighting in us, we feel honored. I tell the story about the roses, you know, with my wife, but I won't do that here unless you want me to. <laughs> it, it is so illuminating. Would you, would you do a version of it? Well, 
I, I knock on the door. It's our anniversary, say, and I never knock on the door. And um, I've got 44 roses behind my back. I don't know how I can hold 44 roses, but there they are. And I want to surprise her with the roses on our 44th anniversary, which just passed. And I ring the bell, and she opens the door and looks funny, like, why did you ring the bell? You never ring the bell. And I say, happy anniversary, Noel. And I pull out the roses, and... Uh, she smiles and puts her hands on her cheeks and says, oh, Johnny, they're beautiful. Why did you? And I, I get this sober look on my face. I lift my hand and say, it's my duty. <laughs> I've told that story 50 times, 100 times. <laughs> People always laugh. People always laugh when I tell that story at that point. And I pause and I say, why did you laugh? Why are you laughing at duty? Duty's a beautiful thing. And everybody knows why they're laughing. I just dishonored her. Mm. That's the wrong thing to say on your anniversary. That's stupid. To lift your hand and say, it's my duty. I've read the books. I know how to do anniversaries. I'm bringing you roses. That's what you do on your anniversary. No, no. Here's what you do. You ring the doorbell. You whip out the roses. She smiles. She puts her hands on her cheeks. She says, oh, Johnny, why did you? They're beautiful. And you don't say it's my duty. You say, I couldn't help myself. Nothing makes me happier than buying roses for you. And in fact, I've got a babysitter set up so we can go out tonight because there's nothing I would rather do than spend the night with you. You bring me so much satisfaction. Not in a thousand years would she ever say at that point, you are so selfish. All you ever think about is you, 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 and what brings you satisfaction. She would feel honored by the fact that I'm finding satisfaction in her. And if you just bump that up to the divine level, that's what Sunday morning worship is. Mm -hmm. We're coming here on Sunday morning to say, God, I want to date with you this morning. I want to see you. I want to sit with you. I want to enjoy you. Reveal yourself to me. You make me happy. Now, at that moment, when God gives me that satisfaction he is most glorified and i am most satisfied which is why the god-centeredness of god his always pursuing his maximum glory is really good news bursting with implications for us before god corporate worship love toward others and specifically for leadership as an elder as a pastor what does this mean for the way that we think about christian ministry it means, first of all, that we're always God-centered. Whenever we start to think of ourselves as being in the center, we shift it out and say, this is all about God. And secondly, it means that we are constantly, let's say we, let's say me, when I'm sitting with my elders, when I'm sitting with the staff, my main job is to help them see God as infinitely glorious and all satisfying and ready to be all they need in any moment in their life. That's how you lead. You constantly point to his all sufficiency in everything. And then you develop a theology for your leaders so that they get why God-centeredness is good news. They don't ever labor under the misapprehension that, oh, we have to be God-centered around here because that's what the Bible says, or because that's what John says, whatever. Nobody thinks like that. You haven't created the atmosphere of the theology if they do. Rather, this place is all about joy. We want to have the happiest people on the planet in suffering. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, to stir suffering in here because God is seen as most satisfying 
uniquely when we are most satisfied in him in the midst of losing other things. If we lose other things, like you just, you just did a beautiful, beautiful sermon on the loss of little Hendrick, five-month-old baby. Well, this, this whole service is dominated by a massive loss. Everybody's feeling it. Everybody's got tears in their eyes. And that set of parents and you lifted us to see God. And it didn't take away our tears, but my, did it put rock under our feet and glory over our head because we said, no, no, we have just experienced a massive loss. Pain is huge and God is enough. God is all satisfying here. And those moments, at those moments when joy through tears is not being destroyed by a loss, God really looks big. Amen. Amen. John, would you close us in prayer for those listening? Father, we, we want to live what we say. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come and give the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness and meekness and faithfulness and self-control rooted in Christ who loved us and gave himself for us that we might live enjoying him, satisfied in him, displaying his worth to everyone. We ask this in his name. Amen.